And so, if, if it's okay with you, we leave those. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, you probably won't like me because I'm, I'm, um, I love technology, but I love appropriate technology, and I think a lot of the technology we've taken on is just it's almost as if everything everyone invents, we have we're almost ordered, not ordered, but made to take it on. Otherwise, yeah. we can't function in the modern world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've chosen to be very not definitely not anti-technology, but very much choosing what technology will make my life better, which doesn't mean easier. The seem, people seem to not know the difference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I keep saying to people who get onto this subject, I have my mountain bike, my piano, my pencil, my pen, my landline phone, I have electricity, I have all sorts of modern things yeah. that make my life good. But I haven't got a computer, I actually don't want one. started coming in with fax machines and stuff, then people started getting a fear of technology called technophobia. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so we had, we had to invent a new word called technopreneuriaphobia, which is the fear of losing, losing, losing technology. So people have this big fear of losing their technology. You know, the elevator stops in the middle of the building, yeah. the car stops in the back forest, yeah. you know, they don't get Wi-Fi connection, then this fear comes up and they don't even know what to do with it. So we do technopreneuria healing processes. Yeah. What if I make you? Oh, any coffee? And tea, tea would be great. Tea? Yeah. Tea would She's be wonderful. Just ordinary um, yeah. 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 tea. I have got... And with milk? 
I would. Yes. Milk. Yes. Sugar? Well, wait. Does the, does the milk mean you have to drive no, 17 kilometers on your bicycle? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Because I'm, okay. a, I'm a hypocrite. And a, whenever my family, my family visit me, I um, they ask what I need. Oh, great. Oh. So there's no worries. And I bike and drop it all but I don't think that's hypocrisy. I think that's really clever. <laughs> <laughs> it's collaboration. I mean, the collaboration is, <laughs> really, yeah. is really more like what how nature works. What? <laughs> really? So that's why we came here. Mm-hmm. Actually, and no sugar, kind of sugar. Yeah, no. and I've changed my mind about the milk. Oh, you do? I just clean your milk. Yes. Oh no, 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 it's not a problem. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. I've got powdered milk anyway. Okay. There's a backup. So yeah, no sugar, just here. just a little milk. Then. No, no, no way. But no sugar. No yeah. sugar. No. Okay. And the same for both milk. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that's why we get along. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no lemon. No lemon. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Chloe, where were you born though? I was born in Paris. In Paris. I was born next to Paris. But my dad was in the or he, yeah, was in the military, so we moved around a lot. Wow. And I lived in New Caledonia. Yeah. For a couple yeah, years. Closest neighbor. Yes, neighbor mm-hmm. from here. And yeah. I used to come here a lot because my grandparents we're still in, in Wellington. Yeah. And so, I'm, yeah. So, so is your mum that's Kiwi? Is yeah, she is. And, and then what's she, your dad? You French, 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 yeah. And she moved to France for 25 years while we were growing up ah. and moved around with us and then came back here when we all were And so you're living here now? No, we, oh. so just for the three months. You just for the just three months? Just for the three months, months. yeah. And, uh, so you, up, you were brought up in a bilingual household? Yeah, bicultural, oh, yeah. But we we met Clinton and I met at this project in Spain close to Murcia, which is um, not quite Granada. Um, you know, Granada is in the south, yep. like in, and it's kind of in the in the center of Spain where nobody is, and and the desert of the Sahara is just is just creeping on Europe completely. So it's completely dry. Yeah. And there was this uh, man called John Dennis Liu. Yeah. Do you know him? No. So, and he's, he's half Chinese, half American, yeah. and was a journalist who, went, who was sent to China in this project of land restoration, where they restored, it was Im- immense. Yeah. It was like thousands and thousands of hectares. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it went from this desert where, where China had mined the land to this green and in his movie was called Green Gold, and then from that point, which he was pretty young when he did that, went totally. He totally got awakened to the the, the devastation on Earth, and spent his whole life and still doing it about trying to talk to government and corporation about restoring land. Yep. And noticed after really it was so there's one here. I'll just get another one. Okay. Is that where is that strong enough? Oh no, here. Is that strong enough? Oh yes, that's perfect. And um yeah, and after twenty years somehow, twenty five years of trying to talk to government and corporation, realized that they their the purposes couldn't would not match. The corporation did not want to make land restoration as their priority. And so finally turned, realized, okay, the people can do this because the people, the local people who care about land will, will do this. They just are missing some kind of framework. 
yeah, yeah. resources and framework yeah. and in places. Yeah. And so we were actually in the first, uh, he called that ecosystem restoration camp. And the idea was we make a camp, we restore it. So we plant enough trees, basically mostly that. And, and then we move on to the next piece of land and the next piece of land. And, and hopefully if there's enough camp and enough movement, we'll, that's, that would be the restoration of yeah. on earth. And so that was five and a half years ago. Yeah. And the project's still good. It's yeah. still growing. And they fired us, though. Yeah. <laughs> Why did they fire you? Clash of opinions. Yeah, something like that. We wanted to include that we realized that this the land restoration wasn't really sustainable if there wasn't a human restoration happening at the same time. Oh, yeah. And that really, it scared people mm -hmm. to realize, okay, maybe maybe we need to learn something new. And and people thought, oh, I'm just going to be here and plant trees and not change. Uh, yeah. And that, yeah, so that was a different purpose that was happening. The different approach here, you probably aware of this, but um, <clears throat> in effect, a scientist, a new scientist, said it very well. He said the answer is not to plant trees, mm -hmm. but to just um, retire enough land and manage it softly to let nature just regenerate the forests of the world. And I, I mean, it's not every every situation is different, but that's how we started out here. We here we've got everything going for us. We've got reasonable rainfall, good soils, seed sources, which everyone underestimates completely. But seed seeds is just not a limiting factor anywhere on Banks Peninsula, even though we've taken more than ninety nine percent of native forest off. Nature's just itching to put it back and has been doing it. And just taking away some of the deleterious things that are slowing that down. Here, it just sped it up just unbelievably. So that within 35 years, it's gone from basically totally uneconomic, totally unpastoral, weed-infested, mm -hmm. marginal farmland to, to strongly regenerating native forests with all nat largely native canopy now. So that's our whole, our whole philosophy. Minimum interference, no planting at all. Of any significance, we love planting trees too. Mm -hmm. I love it, but only around the houses and the visitor centre. Yeah. Well, did you mean that there was totally unestimated of the, of the seed supply? Well, well, you see, everyone's uh, not everyone. People come here and they say, "Have you planted all this?" And I say, um, "Look, we, we just totally overestimate our own importance in the regeneration of native forest, and totally underestimate how unbelievably efficient and." And hugely productive nature is. So when I say the seed source is not limiting, even the rarest of the rare things here, plants that are just on the verge of local extinction because they've been so, the habitat's just been so white, um, just take away those deleterious things as much as possible. You never get rid of all of them. And they come back. They just mm. bounce back. And so I, I sort of use the story of one of the most common colonizing native woody plants here is a tree we call kanuka it's in the myrtle family it's all over the place it's very abundant and it acts like the exotic gorse it just recolonizes pasture and mm. bare land on the big slips we have in our big store over a year ago there's just trillions of kanuka seedlings trillions and i mean trillions i mean I'm, that's it's off the top of my head but how could you plant a trillion kanuka trees you can't but nature's doing it without any cost to us nothing mm just does it. So I always say that one carnica tree produces enough seed in one year, if they all germinated, which of course they mostly do, but they don't 
they're competing, some are dying, some are out in the wrong positions and everything. But nature would have enough, if all of them germinated, that would be enough Karnaka trees to cover this entire land we look after in Karnaka trees. Which is 1,500 acre, hectares, yeah, right? it is. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so the, the notion that we can do better by collecting the seed, propagating it, plant, growing it on, planting it, protecting it from the animals that eat it, it's just, it's complete, um, it sounds right, but it's just complete you naive nonsense. Mm. To me it is. Yeah. But, but the same, at the same time, every situation is different. I'm involved with, in fact, did you talk to him, Ash or Max? Max. Max, because Ash is up there too, and he's, he's in, a, in the wintertime, he's involved in another project called Tarakakariki, which means the green pathway. And they're planting native plants across the plains, which is a long way from native seed sources. That, the Canterbury plains have just been yeah. hugely transformed from yeah. what they were. So I'm not saying, I'm not poo-pooing planting. I'm just saying I wish people would just realise how naive and simple we are thinking that we can do it better than nature over most of the world. And, and the what was there before? You were about to say what the plains were like before. Or uh, the, plains, the plains were very interesting because um, like people have only been here for less than a thousand years. Yeah, altogether, yeah. Before Polynesian settlement, um, <clears throat> the plains are very interesting because of our mountains off to the west and they're eroding, you know, very young mountains, you're eroding hugely. So the, the whole plains are just sort of coalescing shingle fans built out across the, the um, continental shelf, we like to call it. It's just okay. bedrocks down there, but it's deep, deep in shingles and sediments. Um, and because the rivers kept changing all the time, there was all sorts of rejuvenated habitats all the mm -hmm. time. But given long enough across the plains, forest developed, of course, and there's a remnant in the middle of Christchurch still. Mm. Um, Rickerton Bush, yeah, it's worth going to see. That's okay. It's right in the heart of Christchurch, and here's a stand of of old growth cocktail pots. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so it was a mosaic of um, younger and older soils, supporting different plant associations, from forest to just open grassland, which would have gone to forest if, if nature had left it undisturbed for mm -hmm. longer. Mm. But then, when the Polynesians arrived, and then later the my ancestors arrived. Um, <clears throat> They just cleared forest, both 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 ways of human oh, settlement. Wow. The Banks Peninsula was forested from side to side and from top to bottom, and then oh, I'd love to see that. But um, but then the Maoris cleared about over hundreds of years, but they cleared about a quarter of it, quarter to a third of it, and then all sorts of native grasses and bracken fern and stuff colonised it, and all the time nature was regenerating the forest. But once people are here, the fire frequency here just goes up immensely. And so, oh, sorry about this. <laughs> I just realised there's a gaping hole in my The forest what goes away? The forest. Um, um, as soon as people get here, the forest. The, the fire, the fire frequency. Oh, fire frequency. Goes up. Yes. Oh, okay. yes. So the, the forest is trying to regenerate all the time, but with frequent fires, it's inhibited and slowed down. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the plains are very interesting, but there's very little native vegetation left on the yeah. plains. We just drove from Kaikoura down. Yeah, oh, it's the east and south island there. But Banks Peninsula is sticking out into the sea here, all volcanic hill country. Mm -hmm. um, we've virtually lost no native plants. In terms of area, we've lost almost all the forests, old growth forests. Mm -hmm. Here's the figures. Um, there's less than 1% of old growth forests left, but there's, um, there's about 20% of forest, native forest now. 
but it, that means most of it's just regenerated forest against mm. all odds because the farmers don't like it regenerating because it takes over their pasture yeah. and their livelihoods, even though it's marginal hill country, it's not very productive pasture farming. Yeah. Does the government uh, provide what's it called? Subsidies. Subsidies. The government subsidise agriculture. Yes. Well, well, the subsidies were basically taken off in the nineteen eighties. There was a there was a huge move by a Labour government, and um, and the farmers hated it, but um, it was amazingly successful. And um, so New Zealand agriculture is very slightly only very lightly subsidised. Mm. It competed with Europe with subsidies in, in the EU, for example. It's just like another planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the farmers in Spain are paid to plow and not plant anything, assuring, yeah. you know, killing off anything that might possibly grow. Yes, well, you see, the, the trend here should be that all this country that shouldn't really ever have been cleared and farmed, but more and more it's going into native forest by, by default. And they keep trying to clear it. And even around me, they're spraying Karnaka, that colonising woody plant, because it's invading their pastures, and they want pasture. But if they, and I think they're beginning to see this, if they took away trying to do that, to, to at least to their poor and pastoral terms country, they can claim, claim carbon credits from that, and they could earn three times as much per hectare from carbon credits as they could ever do wow. from pastoral farming. And they're beginning to click to that now. But the opposite to that is that there's a huge push by forestry companies and even mm -hmm. by some Māori iwi because of, because of the unemployment um, situations. They want to plant exotic pine forests, not for harvest, not for timber, but to sequester carbon. It's so just such an absurd nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's again, like, I think the biodiversity problem is just about as big as the global warming problem. And they're, they're interlocked, completely interlocked. It's like mm. one problem. Uh, and so to plant exotic pine trees, pine is made out as one of our worst weeds here mm. in terms of what we're doing. And yet they want to plant thousands and thousands and thousands of hectares, not to harvest ever, just to have a temporary, but what they call permanent forest. They grow fast. Their, their carbon curve goes up at about 25 years and then starts to fall because mm. they're aspiring more than they're fixing, um, more than they're... Um, photosynthesizing, mm -hmm. um, whereas the native forest curve, it just climbs more slowly in the first 20 years, but up and up and up and up. Mm -hmm. A hundred years later, it's still climbing. Oh, wow. And then we've got all those biodiversity values as well. Mm -hmm. So it makes no sense to me. We're fighting and fighting that. Mm. What, Go ahead. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by we? We're fighting. Why we? Um, without trust, for example, but a sort of a an elusive amalgamation of people who are concerned about this. There's a wonderful um, woman scientist called Dame Anne Salmond. I don't know if you've ever heard that name, but um, yeah. she was New Zealander of the Year every now and again. They select a New Zealander of the Year every yeah. year. She was New Zealander of the Year a while back. She, she speaks fluent Te Reo Māori. She's very involved in indigenous issues and things, but she's a scientist and an anthropologist. But she's also just really sees so clearly what all this pine nonsense is about. So mm -hmm. she writing lots and lots of articles and pushing and pushing. She's been here for the last minute. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I was I was going to kind of change it. Good. Yeah. Well, so I had this, the question was about your beginning. Oh, the beginning, that's right. Yes. And <laughs> See, I talked to that. <laughs> I haven't gone to the beginning yet. <laughs> because a lot of people that we talk to are at the beginning. 
Yeah. And that's where we, we really are in contact with people. And then when they fly, you know, we basically don't see them anymore no. when they yeah. are doing their thing. Yeah. yeah. So how, how, what was Well, it's interesting, just as a side, um, people who are at the beginning, they, they now come and see me quite often. There's just, just very recently a couple, very nice young Kiwi couple turned up and they were looking for land on Banks Peninsula. They live in West Auckland at the moment. Mm. They want to shift down to the South Island and what they really want is a bit of land to do exactly what you say, just to do this really, mm-hmm. on any sort of scale. So more and more that's happening. Mm. And because and I'm here, I, I keep my ears on what, it, or my eyes or my ears on what land is for sale and everything. Agreed. So that is happening a lot, yeah. But how we started is interesting because I'm a botanist by profession okay. and I was doing a, a big field study of the whole of Banks Peninsula, just a vegetation and biological survey of the whole of Banks Peninsula. And and I'd be I'd brought up next to Banks Peninsula. Christchurch is basically where I came from, Timur for the at the beginning. But um so I knew thought I knew Banks Peninsula so well. And and I thought that really the native biodiversity had been so hammered it had sort of retreated into corners and, and everything else was exotic large exotic pasture. But after I'd been about two years into the field work for Banks Peninsula, I realised that we've lost so few plant species. They're still here, even mm. if some of them are just hanging on. And given the slightest chance, bounce back, they come bouncing back with vigour and resilience that we can only dream about, really, without trying to do ourselves. Um, but I'd never, ever had enough money to do it on my own. I, I just wasn't interested in earning money. I just liked doing work I thought was... Mm enjoyable and useful and basically if you earned enough money to live that was fine mm-hmm. except you never get enough money to buy land yeah and i have to say the whole notion of owning land is just completely mm-hmm. ridiculous mm-hmm. owning land how on earth can you get <clears throat> and and that was one of the big clashes between pakaha and maori you know in, in the 19th century the maori had no notion of actually owning land it was just it wasn't even in their world views. Mm-hmm. And so when when Pākehā people came and said, we'd like to buy this land off you, they didn't know, realise they were actually selling the land that we just reserved. They thought they were selling sort of rights to use it for a bit. Mm. So that caused a lot of problems. Big problems, really, mm-hmm. in the beginning. In the, in the beginning of the two clashes between the two. Well, I shouldn't say clashes, because it wasn't all clashes. It was amazing, the history here, really, mm. how those two different ways of people meshed mm. and it was intermarriage from the very beginning mm. um, so so but um but all the same <coughs> money does land does cost money in terms of our western view of it and i would never have had enough money to do it on my own but that was when i was introduced to a christchurch businessman who wasn't that wealthy but he had set up a fund to purchase land on banks Prince. so that's how it all happened we just got together he said he said uh could you keep your eye open for a bit of land that my trust can buy that would be what we want to do with it just basically he wanted to create a sort of sanctuary for the native all the native bird life that was still here wow. mm. and he had actually quite naive views about ecology really he at one stage he said after we'd been going for a wee while he said i'm not criticizing this was interesting because i learned a lot off him too i knew nothing about money and investing <laughs> <laughs> he did he was really good at it um, and he said, um, you know, I'm not quite sure what all this emphasis on plants is. I had in mind a sanctuary for our native birds. And I said, well, it's habitat is everything. And so he, he got that. He got it straight away. Mm. So that was quite a learning curve for both of us. He was totally different. He was quite conservative. 
and um, hinting on racist in a way, uh, like mm. not not in a well, the way people some people are just right. Well, probably we all are just slightly racist because you can't quite understand what I don't know why what someone with different coloured eyes or something is. <laughs> um, but but he learned a lot, he, and he's died at ninety six, about five six years ago. Mm. I think he was a hundred now. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that was how it was possible. That's how we began. And he said, are you interested in the project as well as looking for land? And I, I said, I waited half an hour. And I said, yes. <laughs> and I've never had any regrets. There's been major hassles along the way. Mm. But never any regrets. It's, it's been a, a fantastic project from the very beginning. Yeah. So those hassles along the way, those are people will face those. And so mm, if you could well. tell some stories about some of the hassles and how you made it through, then that would be very helpful. Well, well the, the, the first hassle was... Um, we were trying to set up in a, within a farming community something that they just didn't understand. Uh, I mean, the notion of leaving this exotic gorse alone, which to them was the worst weed of pastoral farming they could possibly think of. Um, and not only did they find it impossible, all the law was against it. Two, we were required by law, one, to keep gorse away from our boundaries with farmland, and that was fair enough, and we did that diligently and, and as, as environmentally in, in as environmentally friendly way as we could. But we had to use herbicides. It was just impossible otherwise. But they also wanted us, anything that was even remotely like pasture, even if it had a few scattered gorse bushes, we had to take them out, according to law. And I said, I'm not going to. Mm. So that we had, we had fought those for 25 years. Quarter of a century we were fighting that. How did you know not to? Well, every ecologist would know not to, I think. I mean... Gorse is just a colonising, short-lived, totally light-dependent, rapidly growing plant that just takes advantage of disturbance. Well, definitely in New Zealand ecology. It comes from Europe and Britain. Ah. And, and, and it behaves slightly differently. There were, it's got all sorts of things that feed on it and eat it and, and limit it and slow it down. But here it just loves the whole environment here. And it, it grows in a slightly wider range of habitats. It, it's, um, it just doesn't only grow on poor heathland soils. It grows on even these soils are relatively fertile in the New Zealand context. Um, and it just grows more strongly. It fixes nitrogen, mm -hmm. so it's, not, it's never any shortage of nitrogen for it. For it. Um, but then as soon as the native plants grow through, the, the numerous native plants love its shade, love its shelter. They even take advantage of the increased above the natural native levels of the nit of nitrogen in the soil. And um, and so if you can keep them being eaten by the animals, um, the native just come through, and as soon as they come out the top and shade it, the gorse is dead. Mm. As soon as you shade it, it's dead. Oh. So every ecologist knows that it's just a pioneering, short-lived plant. And everything that the farmers were throwing at it, they can keep good like flat land on the plains, they can control gorse there, it's relatively easy. But here, where it's entrenched in the landscape, mm. everything they do makes it worse. <laughs> and so and the reaction is not to think, well, we're, what are we doing wrong? They think we're not working hard enough. Mm. And and some of them um, keep trying rid of it. Mm. Um, and I mean, give up, because it's just impossible. Mm. So they walk off the land, or they sell the land to some other unsuspecting, naive person. <laughs> That's what happened just across in the next valley. This guy, it was in the video, you might remember it, but this guy, when we first set up here, we spelled out what we are going to do in the local newspaper, 
and in interviews and things, and we said we were going to leave Agorce alone to act as a, a nurse canopy for native regeneration, which would obliterate it. Um, and this guy across in the next valley lives in a totally gorse-infested farm. He said, um, he wrote a letter to our, our local newspaper, only comes out every two weeks. <laughs> he wrote a letter back saying how stupid this was. He said, um, he actually said if it, if it, um, It'll take at least a hundred years for the gorse to open up enough for any native to come through. And then he said another hundred years before it does come through, and if at all, he said. And then he said in that time that you could get eight rotations of Pinus radiata mm. with a timber crop and add something, he said, to the local community. And then that's when he called us full, a fool and a dreamer. Uh, and the, the title. Of yes, it. that's where the title comes from. Well, three years later, he came back and knocked on my door. I got to know him reasonably well. And he said, um, oh, Hugh, I just wanted to apologise for calling you a fool and a dreamer. And I said, no, no, it's well, a compliment. Come in. <laughs> so he came in and discussed it all. And um, he was basically coming to tell me that he, he was fed up with trying to fight the gorse and he was selling up and leaving, which he did. Wow. And, and that farm is still a gorse-infested, uneconomic, unproductive farm, neither conservation nor agriculture. Um, it's just sort of in a, a hopeless halfway state and it being maintained because they keep trying, the new owner keeps trying to fight the gorse. And the contrast with here is just mind-blowing. Mm. And the good thing is that every farmer around us there, even the most sceptical, after only 35 years, <laughs> it's quite a time I suppose, but um, none of them are against us now after those initial battles. And, yeah. So that's been really good. Yeah. But the 25 years of those court, those trials or court, you were saying for 25 years you're trying to battle against this I'm trying law. Trying to get battle against the law as well. And so you went to court and you were. Well, we didn't. We were never ourselves. We were never actually taken to court. But they can serve a notice on you. They can do draconian things. For example, they can say your boundaries not 10 meters back to the fair boundary fence, and if you don't do it by such and such a date, in other words, spray it. And then you just actually limit it for a little while and it comes back greater bigger than before. So we have our own manual methods, using herbicide, but very carefully, just stump poisoning. Um, and we were working away steadily at our, all our boundaries doing that. And, and the progress was terrific, but it was slower than they wanted to see. Mm. They want instant results. That's what people tend to want. Um, so, so they serve a notice on us, say, if, if you don't do it within two months, we can bring a helicopter along, spray the boundary right along, kill all the natives that are coming up. And this has happened in parts of It never happened to us because they began to get a bit nervous about us because we did put out quite a lot of very sensible, I may say, explanation about what we were doing. And the, with a greater and greater support base, I think they would have been quite scared to take us to court. They would have made, been made to look absolute idiots. Mm -hmm. mm. And, and, they didn't. and so now the whole that whole thing has completely changed. We've got new noxious plants offices. They're all very friendly and cooperative. And it's amazingly different. The support base was people who had become aware of, yeah. of your procedure. Yeah, and it just grew very, very slowly. So the amazing thing is that now donations and carbon credits are our biggest sources, two separate sources of income for our trust. For the first 10 years, everyone who was here worked for nothing because we were earning enough money to live on from other jobs, like I was a freelance botanist. It got more and more difficult because there was so much work here. Mm. 
but we managed fine. And now we pay everyone who works here. We pay a wage, a salary, and um, and uh, and uh, it's only possible because the donations just uh, the donations are unbelievable. Uh, to me, they are. Mm. It's great. Mm. Yeah. Being, I want to go back to her original topic, but first I just wanted to say when one of the reasons we're doing this project is so that people can upgrade their thoughtware. We call yeah. it thoughtware. Like you said, awareness or the um, worldview. Yeah. And, but it's to what they're using to think with. And it's so coming here to view the contrast between obviously this destroyed yeah. ecologies out there and this property is so, so huge. So, and then people can walk around here. Yes, I don't have to ask you. It's entirely open to the public. Yes. That's been really good too. Okay. Because people do come and, and realize. Yes. Yeah, and so the the question was, is there anything else that a visitor can do to study the project or um, work on the project or help out as a volunteer or anything Well, like? that, that's a very interesting question because it's actually, this, I hate sounding negative like this, but since the video came out, we, we've been overwhelmed with offers of help, which is so lovely. That's terrific, but it's totally impractical. And we, we do use volunteers, but very sparingly. We've just got a little team of four people who mm. all know what they're doing. And, and I mean, I'm not, I don't call myself a very good manager of people, but four I can handle. I don't know how people manage 100 workers. I've got no idea how they do it. <laughs> but I, it would make things much more complicated if I even had to manage two volunteers every morning instead of four of us who know what we're doing. We're all attuned to it. They can work on their own without any problems. They don't have to be shown anymore. Um, and, but a volunteer who, we've had, we've used volunteers in the past, one or two of them have been brilliant, and we one one is so good that we use him, not perfect though, but he comes once a week, mm. and, and he's been enormously helpful, and so obliging with his help and everything. Like, he, like I can't go and get bridge timber on my bike, mm. even with a trailer. Mm. But um, he, he, he said, no, I'm coming past Horville Timber, I can pick it up. Mm. And he just, he's just so obliging, it's fantastic. So some volunteers are just fantastic. Mm. And most are just um, good, but um, take a huge amount of organisation, mm. organising and teaching and everything. And some think they know exactly what to do. We have our ways, and some of them may not be the best, but they're ones we've worked out over decades. So we like people to stick to them in terms of we control everything. Um, so we don't use volunteers much at all. And it does make it's interesting because I, I find it a bit funny that people think conservation projects should work on volunteers, but, and this is going to sound awful, I, I, I'm not sure how it comes across, but, and I never say this to people, but if you were a lawyer, say, sitting in an office and someone said to you, bring up and say, oh, so we're coming to help you for a week in the office, well, a lawyer wouldn't take that on. It, possibly what they'd do is select a, what they call an intern or intern. something, and especially arranged and interviewed so they know they're going to be good, all this sort of thing. But why do they think conservation, which is, to me is just as um, demanding and complicated as being a lawyer, to be honest. Mm. You've got to know what you're doing. And, and um, so I find that a bit hard to get my head around. Mm. One of the idea of the book is that these these projects, and we're also looking at um, eco-villages, I don't know if you know about eco-villages, mm -hmm. 
and um, whatever these edge project we would call them that have a different thought where they're, they're there's people who are looking for a different relationship to earth a yeah. really different relationship to themselves yeah um there's these projects are actually quite rare yeah. and so and that's why some of these projects open their doors of saying okay let's yeah, pay the oh, price no, really you know, oh, let's okay. pay the price of having volunteers because what the possibility is that yeah. these people change and grow up oh, and no, in a, a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so and and but at the same time i totally understand this thing where people think they they kind of and volunteer and somebody somebody's going to take care of them yeah. and and that doesn't work for the project it just brings the project down yeah and and so we want to be, in the book the clarity is if you're going to come it's like you like you were saying it's it's you're going to give more than you take and 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 that's also for the project to decide you know yeah. will that work will that work yeah. and i know there are conservation projects here in canterbury in this province that do use volunteers mm. heavily and it seems to work okay yeah like quail island or tamahua in the middle of middleton harbour that's a restoration project there, and that's a planting project. Okay. If I was looking after Otamahu, I wouldn't actually be planting, but mm. I'm not preparing it. It's been wonderful in terms of education and involvement and everything. All those things are fantastic. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I, I feel my best contribution can be just to run this corner mm. of the earth as well as I can, and I can't change the whole world. I never pretend anyone could, or well, maybe one or two people could, like Gandhi and Christ or whatever. <laughs> he Maybe didn't, he didn't did. agree well. <laughs> <laughs> but but no one can, can they? But what what can change the world is, I think, is what you're saying is um, education and views and, and sort of um, absorbing different attitudes and cultures that can change the world, and that sort of grows organically from little nuclei like this mm -hmm. to the other project. So I'd rather just look after this property and, and it's completely open to the public so thousands of people come here every year mm. and they take away a little bit from it, I'm sure. So that's how I see my contribution to that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Not by having hundreds and hundreds of unskilled workers here yeah. helping. Yeah. Just a little idea. It sounds like you could use a volunteer who could organize volunteers. Yeah, well, we could. We could, but even so... That still doesn't appeal to me because I feel the four of us, we never ever get anything finished, but, the, but we're doing Pretty it as efficiently as I can envisage, yeah. really. And so that's just adding another layer of complexity on. But yeah. it, and for another project, it could work beautifully, and people do. I know they do, so I'm not doing it. But for this project, that's how I see it. <laughs> so I want to go back to your question, go ahead. which is simply there is a kind of motivation that you used to commit your life in a way to take care of this corner of the world and can you just talk about that like what was the sense you had or the perspective that would allow you to do that well it's like a dream come true for me there's nothing i'd rather be doing um and and uh, maybe i could make a bigger contribution to the world if i was uh, i don't know a lawyer or a writer or anything like this, but I don't know. But this, um, this is what I do best, and this is what I love the best. And it's 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 not a sacrifice or a burden or anything. It's just it is like a dream come true. 
even to the extent that I remember from school days, um, early high school days, maybe I was 13, 14, 15, and, and I, I, at that stage I hated mathematics. I just could not get my head around mathematics. I, I now fully understand what a miracle mathematics is, but I haven't got a mathematical brain, really. Um, and so I, I spent all my math classes using my math books to design nature reserves. You know, at age 14, I was designing nature reserves. And every now and again, the teacher would come along and find I'd fill my math book with nature reserves, and I was appearing to be dense and dumb about mathematics, and I'd get caned. I mean, we got corporal punishment in those days. I got frequently caned for that sort of thing. It's bizarre now. Well, talk about pain. You had to face this pain. <laughs> oh, that's so, so when the chance came to me, when Morris White, the, the guy, the Christchurch business owner, had set up a fund that made it financially possible to even start this, and he wasn't that wealthy, and the fund wasn't that big, but it was the real the, the starter, the nucleus of what happened. Um, it was just like, I just that's why I didn't hesitate to say yes, because I thought, Right, here we are, I'm offered this path, so I'm going to choose it straight away. And, and as I said, maybe any regrets. Mm. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you have a sense of, you know, the, a lot of people we meet have been really um, wounded by school, you know, mm. not just physically, but, you mm -hmm. know, emotionally and psychologically, yeah. and where this seed of who they are, you know, like you, you were just drawing these, these nature yeah. reserves, yeah. get completely... Beat, beaten out of them, yeah. you know, either physically or not. Yeah. And it's like, how do you have a sense of how did you keep that flame going? Oh, well, I see, honey, my last resort, my last, my last report from my high school, which was in Christchurch, it said has done very well, but is somewhat prejudiced by claims of outside interests. That's, I think, those were the exact words. <laughs> and that, that meant um, drawing nature reserves in my. <laughs> My math book, but also I, I, I was a mountaineer and a tramper and a skier for a while. Those were all my outside interests. Mm -hmm. So all those claims of outside interests are what I've used my whole life for. So that's, that's how bizarre school can be. Mm -hmm. But I didn't actually, um, I didn't hate school. There were lots of things about school I quite liked. Mm -hmm. um, and the things I hated about it, I just thought, oh, well, this is just something you've got to put up with. And then I'll be out of it soon. I can just be a free adult, basically. Mm. And that's how exactly how it happened. Mm. Gosh, I was very lucky. Another, it's amazing how lucky I've been. Because <laughs> when I left high school, there was suddenly this chance. To, it's what the Americans they called um, Peace Corps volunteers. Mm. So um, the very year I left high school, um, we were setting up volunteer service abroad in New Zealand, which is which is about volunteers. I went as a volunteer. What a hypocrite I am! <laughs> I went to um, Sarawak in Borneo, mm. and um, and and that was such a mind blow. Yeah, I thought I'd just my, may or may not follow my siblings and go to university, and thought I might not. Um, and then off I went to Sarawak for a whole year as an assistant volunteer teacher, getting a very small little wage, no more than most of the local people got, and it was mind blowing. I just suddenly exposed to all these different cultures and indigenous cultures in Borneo and Chinese, and Malay, and it was just amazing. So I came home from that year just, I wasn't transformed, but it just lit those fires, really. Cool. Do you know um, the book 
Original Wisdom from Robert Wolf. I've heard it. I haven't read it, actually. Hmm. I, you might you might really like it. Obviously, you're a reader. You know, I'm just so, reading a book a bit like that called Braiding Sweetgrass. And, oh, yes. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, you see, I thought that was going to be all sort of new age and eerie fear and everything. But she's a, a scientist who happens to be an indigenous American, Canadian. Mm. And um, and and I'm really loving that. Mm. And he was the same. Robert yeah. Wolf was a scientist. Yeah. Okay. And he went there as a scientist and, and was with the Sengoi people. I don't think it was Borneo, but it was on Malaysia. the... It was Malaysia. Yeah, yeah the part Malaysia. of Borneo I was in is part of Malaysia now. So yeah. It might have been the Borneo part, or it might have been Peninsula, Malaysia. Maybe yeah. I think he was on the main peninsula, yeah, yeah. but it, yeah. the, the book is just incredible. Of him, the scientist, you know, now they don't call him Pakeha, but white men yeah. discovering these indigenous yeah. culture and then being transformed. Yeah, he's incredible. Yeah. This moment where where you somehow started realizing that you had an opportunity to swim downstream instead of you know fighting against the structures and systems that were annihilating life on Earth, essentially. And, and you could actually instead be carried and go in the direction where Gaia of Earth would would want you to go. Yeah. And then there were, what happened that you had the freedom of movement as, like you said, free adult. You said the word free adult, mm-hmm. I think, free adult man. You had this moment of realizing that you made it through school mm-hmm. and then and that you did not give yourself up. In terms of what you really longed for or were interested in, and then and then there, you were starting to be carried by this project. Like how how was that? Well, uh, I mean, I've always felt as an outsider, to be honest, which is funny for me because I love New Zealand and I love New Zealanders, but um, but I feel like an outsider and always have. But that, as well as being a bit anxious making, that also gives you an amazing freedom, just to think. Well, this is how I want things to be, and I will live as if I'm contributing to the way the world should be, without wanting to, without wanting, I didn't want to change the whole world, but without thinking I can. You just, you can just do in your own little corner what seems best, and that—that's the spark. That was what it was. Mm. So I always felt a bit different. And um, and so I thought, well, I can't be different. I don't have to go along with all this culture that I think is ridiculous, and as part of a culture that I love as well. Mm. So that's I think that's how it happened. Even like that doing nature reserves in my book at thirteen and fourteen, but long before that, partly my parents are important because my parents, my dad was actually a religious minister. Can you believe? Oh. And I'm not religious. I, I find I feel very annoyed with religion, but. But I didn't get annoyed with his religion. Well, it was Presbyterian, Protestant mm-hmm. Presbyterianism. And my mum was almost even more religious than my dad. But they were so liberal and so tolerant and so unjudgmental about other people's religions, other people's non-religions. It was an extraordinary upbringing in many ways. But the other thing that they were love, they were outside people. Dad loved fishing and... Mum just absolutely loved tramping and took us into the mountains and they took us on family holidays and it at an incredibly young age that just so sparked my love of nature. They took us to Stewart Island, like one of the southernmost 
mm-hmm. with Ireland and New Zealand. And um, I'd never been there before. I think I was maybe 10 or 15. Uh, that also, just like Borneo later, it just blew my mind. It's like a, I don't know, have you been to Stuart Island? It's some yeah. it's sort of like old New Zealand. It's largely covered in original vegetation and there's kiwi there galore. Mm. And the native parrots are there, kako and kakari mm. here. It's just, it's a national park now. It wasn't the national park then, but it, I just felt, oh, I just utterly love this. I just, you know, uh, just passion for the word, but it was like that. I just loved it with all my being. Yeah, the birds in the wilderness, and just that only had four hundred people on it, and it's only got about four hundred people now. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny little town. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. what would you say to people who were somehow knew that modern culture was not their home? Well, I meet quite a few people who, who think like that. Can so when I say them? I felt different, um, not now, well, I feel different from lots of people, but not this many, many people I relate to at that level. Yeah. And, people and who, don't, who don't have a car or a computer, also, I do not know quite a few people like that. And, and what, but many people are concerned like they don't think they have, are earning enough money to live in modern culture. Like, uh. What would you tell people? Well, well, the thing is, if you don't own a car or a computer, or, and if you're happy with living a simple life, you're earning more than enough money. Anyone would. Well, I'd not say anybody, but in New Zealand, probably. It's, I was by far from being an egalitarian society. There's, there's not that many people who are poor in a real sense. I mean, they are poor in New Zealand society because they see what everyone else has got. And so then and there's envy, and they think they need them. Oh, I don't know, it's very hard to judge by the people, isn't it? But um, I think if you do have simple needs, you can live on almost nothing. But there's some leap people have to make about this fear of being judged or fear of being weird yeah. or fear of being... Oh, yeah. And wh- how can you... What could you say to them to, to, to make the kind of leap that you did? I don't know. I don't know what to say. But, um, but it's just meeting them, talking with people as freely as you can, I suppose. And not being judgmental and not saying that you have to do this or need to do that. That's what religion does. We don't want no one wants to do that, really. Um, yeah, and so because yeah, I mean you you could be like that and be a hermit and then you wouldn't be no toing and froing of ideas like that. But um, I maybe yeah, I am a grumpy old hermit, but <laughs> but I don't Well people knock on your door, you still let them in, so <laughs> give them a cup of tea, have a conversation. <laughs> you, you know, I think you just go on living life the way you think it should be lived, and people, without being they, without being lectured to, because I do feel I'm lecturing sometimes. But, but if you don't lecture and if you don't preach like a sermon or a pulpit, um, but people say, oh, he hasn't got a car or a computer or cell phone, he seems quite happy. And then they'd ask, they said, they, start, they sort of think to themselves, why is he happy? He doesn't have those things he doesn't want. He doesn't need them. And even when I say that making life more and more difficult, it's far from being impossible. Even though you can have to, almost everything you do, you have to do online now. Mm. But, um, but I don't do things online, and I just keep writing letters and putting stamps on the envelopes and mm. posting them off, <laughs> and they're still being delivered. <laughs> Did you have? And 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 
what would you recommend people read or study to empower themselves to like that? Do you have favorite books? Oh, I have lots of favorite books. I, I find, and all I do with that is just if I read a really good book, like I talk about writing sweetgrass mm -hmm. people. The interesting thing is I, I didn't know about this book, and I was taking a guiding a walk in our once a year we have a walking the whole Venice Prince is a walking festival, mm. and we provide one or two walks guided walks on Hanawai. It's only, it only twenty people, but we were walking along a way over there. And one, one of the people said, um, what is this grass here? It smells lovely. And I said, oh, that's, we call it karitu in Māori, or holy grass, or sweet grass. And they said, sweet grass. <laughs> and they just read this book, you see, because the genus that sweet grass belongs to is all worldwide. And we've got one here. Oh, we've got several species here, but this one, one on Banks Peninsula. And um, and it's so, it was so important to the original inhabitants, of the Māori people on Banks Prince, there's about four place names about Banks Prince and named after this grass. So you think, why would they name something after grass? And in fact, it was quite important because it was their floor covering mm -hmm. and they it was lovely, like sweet smelling, mm -hmm. more than a hay smell, it's a very nice sort of, I think, cumin or something, it's some compound that's got in it that makes it really nice. And so all over the world, indigenous people have used other species of sweet grass. Mm -hmm. With all their own names for it, of course. So then they said, "Oh, you you might like to look for this book." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how, but that's what I'm trying to say is, um, if I read a good book, I'll talk about it to people. Yeah, and I, I never, I this is when my when my dad his his minister friends would say, "Oh, Mac, I never have time to read," and he'd say, "So and so, you don't have time not to read," and that's good. But I unfortunately that that bottom shelf there are books that I really want to read that are waiting to be read. So I never, ever find enough time to read. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I'd like. Would it be problematical for you if we sent you a couple of books to put on your show? No, it wouldn't be problematical at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have these Centauk, yeah, Titan yeah. Yoga Board. And, yeah. You know, I love reading those. Yeah, yeah. You know, reading is good to recommend to people, isn't it? Although some people just aren't readers, are they? We, we try to make it, you know, people went to school where they mm. learned to hate reading. Mm -hmm. And such a sad thing. And mm. so we, um, I try to do everything I can to empower people to read and write. Yeah. And why, you see, you see, I find that, well, I hear I'm going to sound like a fanatic again. Um, handwriting. People yeah. are, are losing the ability to handwrite. Because they think they can. They learned it at school. But a thing like handwriting is like music or speaking or anything. We have to just constantly exercise those muscles of your body mm -hmm. or your brain or whatever. And if you're not doing it every day, you lose it. Mm. I find that a tragedy. Yeah. So so instead of you see, instead of writing it down in a notebook, just just a pencil in a notebook, what does that cost? A few cents. No, no, they need a computer to do it. They need an iPad or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, it costs thousands, and it, oh, well, it costs, costs money, mm -hmm. and it costs the earth because there's rare metals and there's energy. You know, this Bitcoin nonsense, there, this, there, there's a, I mean, correspondence, the moment with someone in Australia who's, who reckons that Bitcoin will be the um, resource for conservation, and they, they call it global climate dollar or something. Mm -hmm. 
And they actually used us as if we were supporting it. So I had to write to them and say, look, when you phoned me, I made it quite clear that I didn't want anything to do with it, even if only for the fact that even to have Bitcoin, there's all this blockchain stuff that is hugely energy. And, and um, you know, I've just got another letter back from him explaining why it's good and everything. <laughs> and apologising. It was a oh, nice okay. letter. Okay. Apologising for using our name in vain, but...